You're listening to the Doheny Podcast Network. The Doheny Eye Institute, working for all to see. Your host is Jody Becker. My guest is Dr. Alfredo Sedun, a world-renowned specialist in neuro-ophthalmology. Dr. Sedun's 30-plus years of experience in the field have earned him an international reputation for research and treatment of diseases of the optic nerve. This time on the Doheny podcast, we'll take a deep dive into some of the questions around research and treatment as we talk about the role of clinical trials in advances in ophthalmology and who makes a good candidate to join a trial. Right now, there are hundreds of clinical trials going on in ophthalmology, gathering data on the efficacy and safety of developing treatments. It can be confusing for patients, and we'll take this time to unpack how clinical trials work and who might become a participant. Dr. Sadoon, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Can you talk a little bit about the who's and why's of clinical trials broadly among all of your colleagues, not just in your own work? There is, of course, one misunderstanding, and I'm glad to use this opportunity to try to educate. People don't get to pick which clinical trial they're in. They can become candidates for clinical trials, but the first step in establishing whether you're in a candidate or not is to be known to the researcher. So, in fact, people can't go online, find the trial, contact me, and say, I want to be in the clinical trial, although they tried to do that a few times. Uh, but I explained that the first step is to be understood. So they need to come and see me, have a lot of examinations done, and then sometimes it turns out that they are a good candidate for the trial, but they have to come with the understanding that maybe not. My first job is as a physician to tell the patient what is in their best interest. Um, my second job is to do the science right, and that also represents a potential filter where they may not be good for the trial. Uh, if they are so unusual uh, and so atypical in the way they manifest the disease, then the trial doesn't do itself good science by trying to mix them with uh, people who are very different. We have inclusion exclusion criteria, which are both to ensure that the patient benefits and to ensure that the trial is likely to work. How are patients matched? Because I know many patients who are looking for vision-saving treatment are willing to try almost anything and, as you said, will go online and look for potential treatments or clinical trials they can participate in. But from the perspective of the researcher, the doctors, how, how really are those matches made? So it is difficult. And as I say, I, I work through a series of steps. And step one is to examine the patient and establish exactly what are their characteristics. Step two is based on that to decide what are their options and what are also perhaps the social uh, elements that, that limit the options. As an example, if the patient is coming from abroad, and that happens a number of times, I've had several patients from Australia, to give an example, entering in my clinical trial, are they prepared to fly in from Australia every month to properly control the, the progress that they're making? If after all of this we decide that the patient themselves would benefit from the clinical trial, then we get to the second category of, of, of analysis. Do they have a typical expression of the disease? If they don't, then the science won't work because we have to compare patients and they have to be fairly homogeneous as a population. To give one very specific but uh, technical um, example of that, there are three different mutations that exist in Labor's hereditary optic neuropathy. And these gene trials are limited only to 11778, one of those three mutations. 
if they happen to be 3460 or 1444, I have to explain to them that while it might be nice, it's not possible for them to enter the trial. And is there a calculation of benefits and risks in the selection process? Absolutely. And so that happens at the very beginning when I try to decide whether the patient would be best off in the trial. But it happens later on, too. When these clinical trials um, are designed, we go to the IRB of every institution. So in this case, I go to the UCLA IRB. And I put down the risks and benefits as fairly as I can. And having been the vice chair of the IRB for many years, back when Doheny was at USC, I'm very familiar with the sort of analysis that the IRB does. And there's a very important word that captures that, and it's called equipoise. Equipoise means that as best as we understand, the patient should not really care. This, of course, is not true, but they should not care whether they're in the placebo arm or in the affected arm because the balance between risks and benefits is equivalent. Now, most patients overestimate the benefit of therapy, but we as the, the, the people uh, establishing the trial do understand that there's unknown risk and that the benefits are not equivalent to the promise. Um, patients tend to think that the maximum benefit is what they're going to get, but the reality is that's not true. Taking that all together, the risks and benefits are usually in a balance, and that balance we call equipoise. So it's interesting to hear you talk about something that probably isn't on any spreadsheet, but it's the amount of hope that every patient brings when they're asking to be assessed to participate. Can you tell me about anything beyond the commitment of time? You talked about travel. Is there cost to a patient to participate in a clinical trial, or should there be? No, there shouldn't be. Very often I'm um, not in my own clinical trials, but I'm approached by patients for other things that they call clinical trials that really aren't spread out across the country or the world, and I tell them that if there is going to be any payment expected of the patient, they should run, because that means it's not a clinical trial, it's probably a scam to take advantage. Clinical trials not only take care of all associated costs, which can be formidable, uh, it's not unusual for some of the clinical trials that I've been involved in to think in terms of $20,000 per patient per year. Not only are those absorbed by the company, but even incidental costs should be. The patients who are flying in from Australia have their, their travel reimbursed. While they're here, they check into a hotel not far from Doheny, paid for by the company that runs the clinical trials, and even the transportation back and forth. So there should be no cost to the patient of any sort, even in regards to incidentals. Um, that's part of the equipoise. If the patient is paying into the system, uh, that, that, that is not fair to the patient. Doctor, I have a question regarding the use of the data gathered for individuals. Can any of that data be released to individual patients for them to share with their own doctors? Not early on because of the masking required. As an example, when we are talking about the first clinical trial that we got involved in, uh, but the, the reverse trial, these patients had one eye injected with virus and one eye injected, nothing was injected at all, a needle was held up to the eye. In order to best understand the response of the patients to the therapy and not the placebo effect, the wishful thinking that not only patients but their doctors uh, are naturally tending towards, we created a firewall. The injections were done over at the sign building across town by people who, of course, knew which eye was which. By the time the patients came to me the day after the injection, they were already, I'm the mass observer, 
I didn't know which eye was injected. Hopefully the patient didn't either. And before the injections, I told the patient, if for any reason they're so clever as to figure it out, don't tell me. Then all the data that I accrue, it's without knowledge of which eye received the real injection, which eye received the pseudo-injection. And that goes on for, for over a year. In this particular case, the trials are about 18 months long, during which I can't tell the patient their response to therapy, and they cannot bring that back to their own personal doctors. If they develop any problems, then we might break that. But when I say we, I exclude myself. The doctor at Stein might say, listen, the eye we injected has got inflammation. Your doctor at home needs to know about that. And then all of that is coordinated. But I'm kept out of the loop because as the principal investigator of the trial, my innocence from, from bias is critical to the science of the trial. Right. But ultimately, after that 18 months is exhausted or whatever period of time might be involved in a specific trial, can that data be accessed by the physician, the primary physician treating the participant? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. If the trial actually is closed, then yes, of course. On the other hand, several times they have extensions of these uh, initial trials where they're doing more follow-up information and they try to maintain the same, let's call it secrecy, but it's really just avoidance of bias whereby we as investigators still don't get to find out. And for patients who might be turned down by a trial who, who aren't successful in finding a match, do you have any suggestions for next steps or where else people can look? Yes. I think that what the patient should do is not decide for themselves they want to enter a clinical trial. They make the mistake of, of thinking that, that what are the, the best possibilities are the most likely possibilities, and those two things aren't true and that they are good candidates and they can't be. What a patient should do in the first place is find the individual that has the greatest expertise and put themselves into their hands. If that individual recommends a trial, terrific. If that investigator chooses that they should not enter the trial, it might be for one of two reasons, either because it isn't good science or because it is not in the patient's best interest. In that same conversation, that person who knows them and is a world expert in the disease is likely to propose to them what is in their best interest. And I've done that often. I've had patients who come to me from Europe or South America or Australia and say, no, the trial's not for you for these reasons. And of course, I try to be very upfront for why it's not a good match. But then I usually follow with, this is the best treatment that I think would work for you. And there are circumstances. Let me give an example. The 1444 in a child is extremely amenable to an oral agent and they might themselves do very, very well because of these particulars. And if they go to the textbook, the textbook doesn't understand that they are under 14 or they have this mutation and not understand that they have other options that might work for them, which in general don't work for the public. So, Doctor, most or all of your patients will have access to the Internet and be doing research on their own. Would you say that the online resources that list various clinical trials are helpful or not so helpful? The answer is yes. It's sometimes helpful and sometimes extremely dangerous. There's a mistaken belief on the part of not just patients but many doctors that anything that's listed in the clinicaltrials.gov are, in fact, FDA-approved clinical trials. Not true. Anybody who wants to can list there, and there are many scams that are listed there. So the, the investigator, the expert, has to not only uh, try to enlist the patient into the best for himself and for the science, but also make him aware of scams. There are scams right now for stem cells where you go to China 
And the way the patient probably should know that it's a scam is that he has to pay $35,000 to enter the trial. Um, but I would like to prevent them from even having to go that far and let them know that there's no science, there are no publications, there's no legitimacy to those. I wish we could say that there's no scams going on in the U.S., but there are. There are scams going on in Florida and Southern California as we speak for optic nerve diseases. And the only real purpose of the scams is to enrich the, the pocket of the, the scammers who are doing this. And, and we have to protect our patients from not getting involved. And yet they're listed in clinicaltrials.gov on the website. So any advice for being able to discern which are legitimate and which are not? Well, sort of to repeat, there's two huge pieces of advice. One is if the patient is expected to pay, they should run away. It means that it's not legitimate because the legitimate sponsors, as part of the, the FDA and the IRBs and all these other regulatory functions, cover all costs. They don't expect the patients to pay. And number two, start with an expert. Don't start with a trial. Let the expert help guide you through the process and find the best place to go and the best, and most importantly, the scams to avoid. Can you tell me about the impact that clinical trials have had on your own work so that can illustrate for our listeners the value of the clinical trial? I've had a career probably similar to many others that uh, has alternated between the most uh, basic science. Uh, we have a laboratory with, with animals and so on. And clinical observational studies where patients from sometimes around the world come to us with very interesting diseases. But to look at both at the same time and, and understand the science in the clinical setting, the clinical trial represents the best opportunity. So it's been very nice that more recently we've been able to get involved with uh, two different groups uh, to do uh, four clinical trials currently in place in neuro-ophthalmology using uh, gene therapy, another clinical trial non-gene therapy, and another one with gene therapy being proposed. Most of the current clinical trials we're doing with gene therapy are with this French group called Gensite, and they've done a lot of heavy lifting before they came to us because, like always, clinical trials begin with preclinical studies, and in the, these preclinical studies, they were able to develop a, a viral vector. In this particular case, it's called AAV2. That means a virus is able to carry genetic information that we want it uh, to do, and the particular piece of genetic information that would be applicable to our clinic would be something called NB4. Because NB4 is what's mutated in this remarkable disease called Labor's hereditary optic neuropathy, and it's carried down the maternal line, so a child from a carrier mother will always have it. They may be lucky and never lose vision, or they may be very unlucky and somewhere around age 20 suddenly go blind because it's always profound blindness, because it's always bilateral, and because it's irreversible, it's a great tragedy. And when that happens, they are obviously understandably desperate to find some, some means of restoring or salvaging what vision they have. So the, the idea is to be able to put this good uh, gene, the uh, ND4, into the cells that line the back of the eye. And in this regard, I think a lot of people have been coming to, to, to us, and me in particular, because we study a disease that is involving this inner aspect of the retina, which makes it extremely accessible. It's not buried deep in the brain or in some other organ. And because it's the very first cell that is encountered from the inside of the eye, if you were to inject the virus right into the eye, it would carry this gene, ND4, to the very first cell it runs into, which is the one we're dealing with. 
There's 1.2 million renal ganglion cells. They form the optic nerve that carries the information from the eye to the brain. And if they don't work, you don't see. So the gene type people have worked it out first uh, with the molecular biology and then in a number of animal studies. And with all the preclinical work being done, we've gone on to these trials. They, they have the usual silly names uh, uh, that stand for certain things, rescue, reverse, uh, reflect, registry. But it all comes down to injecting into the eye a virus and comparing it to the other eye. And once again, this disease is remarkable in that it's so bilaterally symmetric that if the eye that's injected does better than the eye that's not, you know that you're getting an effect. And uh, the trials have gone pretty well. Not everybody has, has benefited, uh, but some people have. And uh, statistically, overall, the injected eye has done better than the uninjected eye. And interestingly enough, even the uninjected eye has done better than the natural history of this disease. And that suggests that something very strange but very wonderful is happening, either at the level of the optic nerve or more likely at the level of the brain, whereby if one eye is starting to work, it can get the other eye indirectly to be more useful to the brain. Thank you so much, Dr. Alfredo Sadoon, for these invaluable insights. Dr. Alfredo Sadoon is on the faculty at the Doheny Eye Institute. His specialty is neuro-ophthalmology. Dr. Sadoon is widely recognized for his research and contributions to the field. He's conducted numerous clinical trials, and we are very grateful to you for taking the time to talk to us about this aspect of vision-saving research. I hope you'll come back. I hope so, too. It's been a lot of fun, and thank you. Thanks. The Doheny Eye Institute at the forefront in eradicating eye disease for nearly 70 years, is dedicated to providing state-of-the-art clinical services and supporting leading researchers in the quest for treatments that stabilize and improve the precious sense of sight. Doheny is now affiliated with UCLA Stein Eye Institute. For more information about our doctors and their innovative work in the quest for better vision, visit our website, doheny.org.